All right, welcome to Agent Provocateur with uh, Alan Walsh and Adam Wilde. And Alan, we have a very special guest today, as we do every show. His name's Paul Gagne. Can you tell us a little bit? We're going to talk to him about 10 minutes. What are we in for? Well, we're going to get an education on uh, what NHL players go through off the ice, uh, really focused on two things, strength and conditioning in the offseason over the summer, and also injury rehabilitation. Uh, both uh, off-ice training and injury rehab have been uh, honed and fine-tuned today down to uh, a very extensive science. Mm -hmm. But Paul and I started working together closely about 25 years ago when uh, injuries were not... uh, uh, How to rehab injuries was not very well known. Um, summer training uh, was not really uh, a big focus for many professional athletes. It was uh, golf season and uh, and time to have fun and enjoy yourselves. Nowadays, uh, players at the end of their hockey season will maybe take two weeks off and start training again for the next year. Wow. And uh, we're going to talk extensively about what Paul does, some of his background players he's worked with over the years, share some stories and, and, and really get a great education on that part of uh, the hockey business that isn't very well known uh, to most people and isn't uh, discussed uh, nearly enough uh, as to the importance of having that piece of your career in place uh, when you go into the off season or you suffer a significant injury. Well, so that's going to be fascinating. In the meantime, uh, I want to ask you about this because there was a, a Justin fault quote uh, floating around that plays into something we talk about on the Steve Dangle podcast all the time. And it's the, the perception of Canada and about wanting to play in Canada. Uh, and obviously with COVID, there's complications with crossing the border either way. And he's, this is what he had to say. I'm not looking forward uh, to going to Canada one bit, we'll, but we'll play some hockey games and get it over with and then come back. And he was uh, apparently referencing the COVID-19 procedures required for crossing the border between the United States and Canada. He said, I mean, it just seems like that things are going to be a little different up there than they are here. Uh, I like where we're at in this country. So we'll go with that. Now, the Calgary Flames social media team had a real fun time after the Calgary Flames blew out the St. Louis Blues. Um, but uh, I, I do want to ask you about this because obviously this is an issue that is affecting players every day. Every day. And and I think there's a couple of things at play here. Number one, coming into Canada and playing before uh, empty buildings or uh, reduced fans in buildings is um, uh, not fun. Mm. And no one, no, everybody misses having a full building. Obviously, uh, the Canadian government right now uh, has more stringent COVID rules regarding coming into the country and um, the society is being impacted uh, differently than what's going on in the United States right now. Without making any comments about what's who's, who's right, who's wrong, you can go to a game in uh, Tampa or go to a game in Vegas and there's a full building. Mm-hmm. You barely see anybody wearing masks. Um, and then in uh, Montreal or Ottawa or Toronto, or even really across Canada, when there are home games played, um, the buildings are virtually empty or very few people are allowed in. So there, there's that. I think for players playing for Canadian teams coming into the United States, um, there's a, a fear of uh, testing positive. NHL players are still tested daily. Uh, that's going to stop uh, after the All-Star break. Mm -hmm. uh, And that's been announced. But players coming into the United States, uh, if they do test positive, uh, the uh, CDC recently uh, reduced the isolation time for asymptomatic people to five days, and the NHL fell in line with that. However, here's the big thing that most people don't know. After day five, assuming you've tested positive while in the United States and you play for a Canadian team and you want to go back to Canada, you cannot fly. You cannot get on a plane and fly back to Canada after five days. 
the only way you can go back into Canada is on a, a private air ambulance, which is extremely costly and, uh, and, and, and very difficult to arrange. Now, if you live, uh, if you're playing for a team uh, near a border, say Montreal with um, Vermont, New York State, or uh, Vancouver with uh, Seattle, you could drive across after five days in a car. Um, but when you enter Canada, your isolation period, your quarantine period restarts back to zero. Hmm. So if you did your five days in isolation, for example, in Seattle, and after five days, day six, you now want to drive from Seattle to Vancouver. You can do that. But once you cross over, you're now legally obligated to quarantine for 10 more days. So there are a lot of players who have been stranded in hotels after testing positive where they have to stay uh, put for 10 days, even though the isolation period is only five. Um, So it's really, it's, it's both ways. I I think, yes, I understand when players have a, a reticence about going in on a Canadian trip and playing in Canada. But I think what's behind a lot of it is players being uh, worried about testing positive on the road in the other country that they don't play in, not their home city, and then having to uh, be away from their uh, family, away from their team for up to 15, 16 days, depending on um, where they are. Uh, and, and how quickly they can get back, get back home. So there's a lot of that going on right now for the last two months. Um, I've had a lot of players call me. I mean, we know that, uh, over 400 players have tested positive since, uh, Omicron, uh, became prevalent as, uh, as variant since, uh, uh, about the first week of December Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, players have called, hey, I, I tested positive and I'm I'm in New York and uh, or I, I tested positive in Florida and they play for a Canadian team. And you're now having to work logistically on, OK, what's going to be the plan for the next 10 days? You know, you can't leave your your hotel room for five and you're talking about dealing with, you know, getting food to them. Uh, working on all those things. And then even after the five-day period um, with uh, your isolation is over, but you can't go anywhere. Right. So it's been, it's been, it's been challenging. And, and I understand where those comments are coming from. There's a, a, a reticence to have something like that happen to you when you're on the road. Um, I think that, uh, so many players have tested positive so far in the NHL. I think we're over 70% right now. I, I don't know how many more players, I don't want to make light of it, but I don't know how many more players can test positive. And now that we're no longer going to be testing after the all-star break um, uh, on a daily basis, uh, I think that uh, at least for the NHL, um, all of those things are going to be um, you know, not as prevalent as they, as they have been since December. Mm. Well, and, it, and that's the thing, right? It's it's not just being away from your family, which is tough enough, right? right. Um, even if a player is single, let's say they're they're fighting for a spot in the lineup, and then they can't play. Are you are you're, you're stuck in a hotel room for fourteen days? The NHL that that means that somebody else gets a shot, and maybe they play better, or maybe it's out of sight, out of mind with a coach, or et cetera, et cetera. The the, the issues go on and on and on and on. I'm saying that's a Justin Falk issue. He clearly has earned his his spot in the lineup, but. All the same, there's a lot of question marks around that. And I think Canadians, and I think rightfully so, didn't didn't hear that necessarily in the context. I certainly didn't, uh, that that it was maybe meant it, right? Giving, you know, listening to that, I go, okay, well, I can understand why he's saying that. Canadians are a little bit, um, and Alan, I think you know this, a little bit, uh, a little bit defensive because you know, when Brian Burke was on sports then he would talk about the fact that, oh, we well, got an eight-team no trade list, that's seven Canadian teams in Buffalo. <laughs> right. That's that's where we instantly go. So right. that's and, and you can understand that. Right. 
Um, a lot of people don't want to, you know, hockey players, well, I don't play in Toronto. The media is too tough. I don't want to play in Montreal. The media is too tough. I want to, you know, I just want to go about my life after the game's over. Um, that's where I think a lot of people thought it was coming from. Uh, not necessarily that it was, oh, these restrictions could be a huge pain and it could really cost me and my team. And also, I guess, staying in playing shape. It's interesting you say that because um, not really a cross-border issue, but I had a player who was playing uh, like gangbusters in the American Hockey League, and he got called up to an NHL team, um, had a great first game, scored, um, and, and really he's looking like, hey, there's opportunity. A bunch of guys are out uh, with COVID. We can come in and make a real impression for five, six, seven games. And maybe this is the shot that he's been waiting for. And then he tests a positive. Oh. And, oh, and no. you, you, you know, that's, you, you just referenced something like that. That's the kind of stuff that is, has been going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, with the, with the, la- I guess the lack of testing, the no testing after the all-star, all-star break, we'll see how much that changes uh, until now, na- until then though, Alan, without further ado, let's bring on Paul. Let's do it. Welcome to another episode of Agent Provocateur. I'm Alan Walsh with Adam Wild. Our guest today is a strength and conditioning specialist who's been working with some of the top Olympic and professional athletes for the last 38 years. A posturologist, a rehab specialist who's worked with many top NHL players, including Jonathan Huberto. Jonathan Drouet, Max Pacioretty, Marc-Andre Fleury, Derek Broussard, Marty Havlat. He's also worked with George St. Pierre and the three Dufour Lapointe sisters on their way to the Olympics and many, many others. Let's welcome to the podcast, Paul Gagne. Welcome, Paul. Thank you guys for having me. It's great to have you, Paul. We're excited. Uh, Alan has Alan has spoken about you in glowing terms and said that uh, you're going to get us all in shape. I mean, it depends on you, but I'll give you the tools. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Paul, can you tell us to start off? What's a posturologist? I mean, basically, we have to deal with gravity. That's one thing, and then in many like posturology is pretty old like even sharrington in the uh, early 1900s and it goes back to even to the first writing about posturology was in the 1600s and human beings were always been fascinated how how do we stand up because we're five times longer than our base of support called the feet and any other mammals especially our cousin primates they don't stand all the time they make a gorilla a chimp uh orangutan they go up on two to feed or fight, but they go back on four. And why something happened in our evolution that we stood up, but that's why we have back pain. That's why we have a lot of stuff because we're we're not made to be standing up. It's something happened. I'm not sure what, but <laughs> what happened is that it creates a lot of problem. It creates an imbalance. I mean, again, you're five times longer than your base of support. And if your feet are not well aligned, basically you need to study that posturology englobes mainly the receptors what is connected to your brain that will influence how do you stand against gravity Hmm. how many times you've seen it alan athletes coming in one shoulder is down the neck is this way feet are like this flat and my the the coach or the mom said i want his first five steps faster says yeah but we have to change something then through history with science they started especially Dr. Brico from France. He started that about 40 years ago and Dr. Rall from South of France to study the impact of the muscle of the eyes, not the eyesight, but the movement and the skin of the foot on the brain and on the posture. And they found like, if you just tickle the foot bare feet, it will change how you're standing. If you do eye exercise, you could do the test yourself. Stand up, close your eyes, feel where you are, Stand on one leg, eyes open, obviously, feel all you are, left, right. Then just take your two thumbs in front of you and you rotate your head side to side, looking at the thumbs, 20, redo the test. And I guarantee you that you should feel more stable. Why? Because by moving your head with your eyes, 
you you what we call we you work on your VOR vestibular meaning inner ear ocular reflex. Now NFL is in the playoffs, big excitement. You run for the you're you're a you're you're a wide receiver. You're running for the ball, and you're when a couple of guys wants to take your head off. But to be able to fix your eyes on the ball as you're running, it's your VOR vestibular, your inner ear, like your it's almost like your GPS, ocular reflex. Then guys that they had a lot of concussion will have that defect. But this is one part of posturology, and you've seen me doing these things, and people they think it's magic. You saw guys on one leg could not stand in two minutes, they're standing with their eyes closed. But it's basically when you understand what's influenced by the brain and connection with the muscle and the skin, the fascia, then you could activate it. The goal, again, is to make you in harmony with gravity. Because if you're always, if you're standing up like this all day, leaning forward like kids now, they're sitting, Zoom, they're watching something always down, their posture are getting worse and worse. I mean... We're almost the same age. I'm a little older than you, but when we were kids, we didn't sit down. Mom had to sit us down to dinner and then fly off outdoor. That's why posture of kids back then in our time, I don't want to sound like an old fart, but I'm born in 1961. <laughs> we, we, to, to penalize us, our parents used to tell us, you stay inside. Huh? No, no. Now, if my son is 23 and not long ago, if I want to punish them, you're gonna go. You're gonna go outside. Huh? What are you talking about? <laughs> See, that's why we deteriorate. And again, the role of the posturologist is to analyze the three plane of space. We take a plumb line, or now we have very sensitive apparatus to measure: Are you aligned with your shoulder, your hips, your feet against gravity? Most people are not. Most people are forward, creating a lot of tension in the feet. Are your feet flat? Or if one is more flat than the other? A lot of kids now, they have it way more than before. That's because of running shoes and the sitting position. Sitting position kills us all the time. And that's the key. That's why we will re rebalance them with exercise and remeasure. Everything is very objective. And it's not me about it. It's like the parents, they see it, the kids or the pro athletes like, whoa, no one ever touched my feet when they were looking at my knees and hips. I'm very fortunate because I'm part of a big committee, even for soccer. I presented many times as the isokinetic symposium. It's the biggest symposium in the world for soccer. It's usually in London sometime, but mo most of the time it's in London. And I'm French-Canadian from Montreal. They look at me like, what do you know about soccer? But it has nothing to do. It has to do with the brain. And I'm always surprised about, like, they talk about ankle injuries and hamstring, and no one talks about the foot. Same thing in hockey. That's the key. That's why, as a posturologist, we're able to detect just by looking at the athlete, how he stands, how he walks, how he's going to be able to skate. And wow. that's very interesting. And it takes, now, like, a couple of minutes. Now, now, Paul, you and I, full disclosure, you and I have been working very closely together now for 25 years. Yep. Uh, so, um, you and I started together really when I had just been in the business for representing players for a couple of years. And I've always been fascinated by how people, uh, in their, uh, field of work got their starts. So how did you get into this line of work? What's your history in that regard? And maybe you'll talk about starting to work with NHL players uh, when we met. Well, I'm born in 1961 in Lachine. If you're familiar with Lachine, it's not Westmount. It's southwest of Montreal. And you got a couple of choices of career. Either you work with Dominion Bridge, Dominion Engineering back then. You became a pro hockey player or a Hells Angel. That was pretty much <laughs> our that was pretty much our choice. And 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 back then, I mean. Uh, Alan is from Charlotte. He saw what kind of ethnic tension could happen in these area. But in Lachine, half the city was Anglophone, kind of Irish, tough, uh, not from London, Buckingham Palace, and French, not from Versailles Castle. We're both kind of hooligans on both sides. And pretty much, we got into fights very young. 
Like it was was pretty bad actually. And the good thing is I my grandma on my mom's side is from Belfast. Then I spoke English very young. Then I was kind of bilingual. Uh, then I didn't get my my head. I'm only five six. I didn't get my head smashed up to get too much. But my mom, as a good mother, she said, "Listen, he has a big mouth, and we live in a tough neighborhood. I'll put him in judo." I was six years old, kind of small build, kind of frail, and already I was pretty good in hockey. Like in Lachine, Lachine it was a mecca for hockey. You got Lachine, LaSalle, Verdun, Villamard. If you go back in the 60s and early 70s, you got guys like Denis Savard, Yvan Cournoyer, uh, the guy who, uh, Normand Cournoyer's brother, I knew him very well. You got Jacques Lemaire from Ville, uh, Ville LaSalle. You got Dolor Saint-Laurent, Phil Goyette. You got all these guys, Mario Lemieux. I mean, even Claude Lemieux lived many years in, in LaSalle. And that created, every time we were outdoor playing hockey, it was a big, big rivalry. You had about five, six rinks and each caliber outdoor. We're not about, not about uh, organized hockey. I'm talking about outdoor in the winter. And that was really very, the competition was really big. If you made it to double letters, it means that you were pretty good because, again, that was about the only sport we did. And we that was our way out of kind of, I don't say misery because we had fun, but it was it was fun. It was a good, that's how I started to get interested into conditioning. Because although I was a small built, because I was doing combat sport, judo, then I did wrestling. I started around 11 years old. Then although I was not that great in hockey, I was able to play with the better, the best because of my conditioning. And that's why it triggers me around 12, 13 years old to read all the magazine from muscle and fitness, muscle mag and being, I kind of, it was easy for me to build muscle. My dad also was kind of built. He always lift weights and train. Then for me, because I was small, when I started to put on size, I got respect. Although I was still very short and my hockey game became better. Although I was never good, my level of conditioning was so good that I was able to play in double letters all the time, a bit like a Guy Carbono against the best player. They hated me because in wrestling, it's three rounds of five minutes. What is playing 20 minutes in a hockey game and sitting down for two or three minutes? It's, it's nothing. Like for us, it's perception. Mm. That's how I started to investigate. That's what I always said to myself. That's what I want to do later in life. And then I went to school and that, study it, and got very lucky, met many of the Europeans. See, Montreal is a good platform for French people, English people, American. It's kind of a, a variety, and that's what made us going into neuroscience from south of France, more biomechanics from the U.S. and England, and the combo of what we had. And then that's why I think, in my opinion, in Canada, we have some of the top strength and conditioning uh, guys in the world because of that open mind. And also, we're lucky we're kind of bombarded because of the French language, the English, the kind of European style. And also, hockey could be, in my opinion, the toughest sport to prepare as a team, even more than rugby. I had the chance to work with very high-level rugby players in the world and teams, and they always say, oh, yeah, you're hockey players. Says, guys, I agree, rugby is great, but you don't have skates under your feet. Everything goes down the drain as soon as you put skates. And that's the thing. It's very hard for us to predict what's going to happen on the ice until we see them on the ice because you don't train in the gym with skates. Mm. A rugby player, a soccer player, a boxer, MMA fighter trains in the gym with his tools, what he has under his feet. Hockey, it skates. You've seen guys over the years, Alan, that bench pressing and squatting beat all records. Not They played maybe one game in the show. And I won't mention name. You know what I'm talking about. And other guys, they had a hard time to do one chin-up. They had a hard time at the combine to do one push-up or like bench press their body weight. And they made $35, $40, 45000000 million during their, their career. Again, don't get me wrong. Doesn't mean that you need to be out of shape to be a pro. But there is a limit on that. You need talent. Mm. And I'm good, but I can't give you talent. I'll give you the conditioning. For me, when Alan brought me a player, super talented, but super out of shape, that was a feast for me. But a, a player that was in decent shape, 
with limited talent or ability. I don't like talent, but abilities. Some people, I mean, they're limited. That was a tougher one for me because already the athlete was in good shape. And but talent wise, I couldn't give that to them. So how did the two of you meet, Alan? Like, how, Paul, Alan, do you guys remember your first meeting? But basically, Norm Conway, Norm Conway was their scout. And Norm was my coach when I was 10 years old. We're from the same area. Mm -hmm. And then he sent me a kid. And then uh, he says, I didn't even recognize him because I didn't see Norm for 25 years. And Norm was a very good, sorry, Norm, but he was a very good looking guy back then. Short, like small, black hair. And he was like kind of a playboy and women (laughs) loved him. and, And I see him coming in. I didn't even recognize him in the gym. Because he got a little bigger and his hair got white. Still got a full set of hair. He's very lucky. But then, then, you know, me and Norm being like, we were very close when we were younger. Then I started to pick on him and Norm and all the boys in hockey. And that's how it started. And he saw like the guys he was bringing me. He was like, hey, guys are doing better. It's very not conventional what you're doing with them. And I see that they appreciate it. And then I met with, Alan right away after when Norm organized a meeting and that was that was the start that's all when we started when, when we started there were really no other agents in hockey that were working closely with someone uh with your skills and your talent and doing what you did in partnership together especially younger players to get them on the road to being pros. And it's not just strength and conditioning. Um, with Paul, it was always about, you know, part-time life coach, mm. um, talking about nutrition. Um, you can talk about your work with uh, Dr. Joubert um, with feet. Uh, it really was a, um, a holistic approach. You hear that word a lot these days, and many people don't know what it means, but it really was looking at literally every single level of ways you could be better, stronger, faster, smarter about your own body uh, off the ice. And and that's really how Paul and I first got started. And uh, maybe you want to talk about some of the work we did from there. But the goal always like, that's why I always uh, had fun to work with Alan and Norm was a team approach. See, we have, we all have good, big egos, everybody, but we actually, that's why we've been married for 25 years and more. We're like some couples that don't even last that long. And we have like, uh, Alan and I, we have hot tempers and we had discussion, Norm too, but we respect, we were able to discuss in a very civilized way. We don't have, we don't take anything personal. And what happened is that the parents felt that, that it was not only me. Only Alan, only Norm was a team approach. And if I didn't have an answer, I got in my partner, Dr. Michel Joubert, probably one of the best podiatrists in the world because he has a background in training. He has a bachelor's degree in exercise science. Dr. Guy Voyer from France, famous osteopath. Uh, we, had a lot of, we had a lot of people coming in to help our players. And I think they appreciate it. Like a Formula One team. It was not a one-trick pony. We had that. If we didn't have an answer, Alan called me or I call Alan. Someone needed an emergency surgery. We will find the best guy in the world right away. And we discuss what would we do. And remember, we had like Jay Kiss and a couple of the guys coming in on the operation table, almost treating the guy as he comes out of the room with Milan and stuff. But the recovery was a lot faster because we cared. It's all about in caring about it's not me. It's not Alan. It's not Norm. It is how can we make that player the best he can through mm-hmm. nutrition, through mindset, to helping them cope with reality and coming outside. I'm usually the age of their parents. And if it comes from your dad or mom, sometimes you'll say, ah, then when it comes from Alan or Paul, they will say, okay, but it's the same, same lesson, but they will listen a little more. You, you know, one thing that I learned uh, early on in the business, uh, a lot has changed today, but early on when uh, I was just getting started and representing uh, my first few NHL players was how behind the times NHL teams were when it came to strength and conditioning, 
off the ice, uh, and particularly injury rehab. Hmm. I mean, we're talking about um, teams with no resources. They didn't have anybody working, and it made no sense to me because if you've got some of your star players injured, uh, whether it's a groin injury or coming back from shoulder surgery, or you just had your knee scoped and you want these players to come back um, healthy, mm-hmm. strong, but also as fast as possible without um, putting them at risk. And many times early on, um, I would speak to NHL GMs uh, about a client who just had a surgery or who is recovering from a groin injury and say, listen, this is in your best interests here. Um, you, you should let Paul come in and work on the player in your dressing room. Yeah. And, and really, that was groundbreaking stuff at the time to bring in somebody from outside the organization to actually come into the room and work with the player. And we were able to do that. See, that's, that's really interesting, you know, and, and that, that wasn't that long ago. I, I, I wondered, you know, Alan, you talked about conditioning and, and Paul and Alan, I, I, w- I wanted to ask you guys about this. The first people that you brought through the door, Alan, when you made that suggestion to the player, hey, maybe you want to talk to Paul, maybe we can clean up the diet, talk about conditioning, talk about posture. Were they receptive to that? Or was it kind of like, what do you mean? I've never had to worry about that before. Why do I care about this now? Um, there was a lot of, um, interest in, in players wanting to be better Mm. and wanting to get educated in what it takes to give them an edge and really the, the edge between themselves and other players where they were competing for jobs, or Mm -hmm. if they were beyond that, uh, competing to be one of the best in the league, uh, understanding how, uh, looking at everything they did off the ice could give them that edge was critical to their entire pro- approach to being a professional, a true professional. And, and really it was when they got to meet Paul, uh, hear him out, uh, listen to the different um, things he would propose, the different people he would take them to, you know, Paul talks about Dr. Guy Voyer from France. I mean, I mean, I've seen Guy work on players, NHL players, NHL stars, and the work that he does off the ice in getting them um, back from injury or even just maintaining, uh, doing maintenance work on different areas of the body is exceptional. And Dr. Voyer, a name that most people don't really recognize is one of the most famous people in the world at what he does. And and he came to us and all these great NHL players because of Paul. Wow. Wow. Paul, let me ask you something. If if I'm a if I'm a young athlete, you know, I'm 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 one of Allen's clients and I'm just out of junior, I've just been drafted and Allen sends me to you. What is going to be the first thing you look at? Do you look at my posture while I'm standing? Do you look at my posture while I'm uh, skating? Um, do we do we talk about diet? Do we talk about exercise? How does that process start? The first visit, it's always a posturology exam. Basically, you'll be like uh, checking with a plumb line or now we have different apparatus measuring how much pressure you put on one foot. If one foot is more in, if you're more forward, one hip, that that's the first, first visit. And I'll give you some corrective exercise, either a bit like we did before with the eyes. And I need to correct the computer, working at the brain level, the first visit. Then after that, then when we start back in the gym, I don't even talk about nutrition right away because I need, I don't want to overwhelm the players, especially when you deal with young players. Sadly, still a lot of parents are too much involved. I have like a dojo approach more at the gym. Like my son used to be in martial art. I was too. Parents were not allowed in the dojo unless you bring in the check every month because they didn't want to influence the, the first of all, the, the, the sense side didn't want to deal with the parents, but it, that's, that's, that's the main, main thing. Then in the first visit, 
I will do a postural exam, give them a couple of exercises. I want to put them in responsibility also. Going back to Dr. Givoyer, you will never treat an athlete if the athlete doesn't do his exercise. And it's very easy for him to see from one visit to the other because he doesn't see my players a lot That if you did it. That's why he always insisted every time he saw one of my young players or older player, he wanted me, if I could, to be there, take notes. And here's the exercise I would recommend he will do. Then I knew we filmed everything. That's what I do with the kid. We do. I even do it on Zoom now because for the last two years, like in, in Canada, gyms are been closed. But we do a great job analyzing on Zoom, giving exercise and kids. I get great emails. Then after that, we start more to strength and conditioning, but based on a good foundation. And we address certain type of nutrition. Kids are getting sm smarter now with nutrition. There's more information now on it. The only issue we have, and Alan could testify, is that let's say they play junior or midget AAA and they stay in a billet. This is where you have to discuss with the family because it's not their parents. They're not right. staying. In an ideal world, Alan and I, we had a huge hotel. We <laughs> would have our own junior team, the Octagon. And then I would guarantee, no, but that's, that's, that's why in soccer, it like uh, they, Barcelona, they have the program. yeah, they grab them at 10, 12 years old. You're part of their academy. They want to make sure that the same cheeseburger from McDonald's you ate in Chicago is the same as in LA because <laughs> that's where, no, but that's true. Us, the only thing that we have against us is that, let's say I work for an NHL team. I don't know what my players did in the summer and the reverse. As a strength coach, if the player is very young, sometimes he will not be, he will be drawn to do what the team does, but it doesn't mean it's good for him mm. because the testing was not done as precise as we did with him. Uh, it's almost go to the tailor and you get a nice jacket, but because your team has a jersey, it may not fit you as much as if you go to the tailor. But right. as a team player, you have no choice. And Alan could say to you, like, later on, when the player becomes a little more older, a little more established, they leave them alone. But it takes a while sometimes. And this is where the communication, like, like a guy like in San Jose, Mike Potenza, and a couple of guys in the NHL, sadly, not everybody communicates with us. Again, it's not about me. It's not about them. It's about the player. This is where the communication about the pro team or the junior team with the guy who takes care of them in off-season, me, very important to mm. be on the same page. See, that's where, because the player gets confused. Kids, they go and see their guys, their friends doing heavy bench press. And now the other guy, and he, he's jacked. He looks good on the ice, but he's young. Believe me, it's, it's easy to go up, but it's hard to stay up without injury. A lot of time injuries are caused by gym work. And I could testify because I've got 38 years of, ex I've done mistakes and we loaded the guys and that's what everybody did. And it's not good. Uh, actually at the hockey summit, June 10 and 12, uh, 11, 12 with Scott Livingston, it's the biggest hockey summit there will be in Trombla. Hopefully it's going to be live. It's the third edition. Uh, it's going to be amazing. And we discuss about that. Our training evolve now the kids are so lucky now because they have access to all the new technology and the stuff and you see it when i started the grinders were in great shape the skilled players played baseball in the summer golf and didn't do that much now <laughs> when you get a guy like Connor mcdavid even Sidney crosby at his age they're in tip-top shape you have no choice now it's not a third or fourth line job now it's not a guy that plays four or five minutes guys they need to be in super shape because the game is so fast it's so big it's mm -hmm. not the game at all it's like these guys now they're in great shape now now adam what what paul and i did which was uh really groundbreaking at the time was we'd work together in designing a summer training camp in montreal for nhl players and not just nhl players but players who are professional or even of junior age. And it became so well-known that uh, a vast majority of our European <laughs> players, Czech players, would spend every summer six to eight weeks, sometimes even longer than that, 
of their off season in Montreal. We were renting apartments uh, before uh, Airbnb and VRBO finding apartments for guys to rent for, you know, furnished apartments for eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks. And guys would be flying in from all over Europe to train with Paul. And we would have an arena as a home base where we'd have ice every day. And Paul would manage the uh, on ice component of the camp. And then usually one day a week, we'd have a, a big scrimmage. And uh, it, it came to fall on Fridays. And, and, and there was one time Paul and I were in the rink and, uh, and uh, we divided the teams up into team Czech and, uh, and team Quebec. Uh, and when you looked at the players on the ice, I think Paul and I counted eight or nine players from the Czech Olympic team at that year. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and, and, and some of the top, Quebec-born NHL players, the, the scrimmages became so well-known. Uh, and we'd hire refs to come in and actually keep score that during the week, I'd be getting calls from uh, NHL players all over Quebec who uh, would come in just to want to play in the scrimmage on Friday because <laughs> it was the best hockey, competitive hockey you could find uh, in the summer to get them ready for camp. So lots of times there were players I, I didn't even work with who were calling up saying, Hey, Alan, can I come out on Friday and, uh, and, and participate in the scrimmage? And, uh, and, and Paul would manage all that. I would come into Montreal and spend uh, a couple of weeks in August. Uh, and, and we would use that time to do financial meetings and other things with the guys to get them ready for the season. But um, the camp itself was a, a, a tremendous opportunity to do a couple of things. Number one, we built a, a real camaraderie within the agency uh, amongst my clients. So they all got to know each other. They got to train with each other in the gym. They uh, trained together on the ice. They either played with each other or against each other in scrimmages. There were a lot of nights we'd go out for dinners um, and and you'd have, you know, a player from Russia, a player from Czech, uh, uh, a, a group of Quebec players, and really everybody was there to help each other. And certain players assumed a leadership role within the subgroup they were working with and they would very much set the example uh, by uh, conducting themselves a a certain way, the way they worked in the gym uh, where the younger guys coming in had a, a role model that they could look at and say, wow, you know, that guy is one of the top players in the NHL and I'm seeing how he trains and I'm seeing how he takes care of himself. And that's part of what I need to do to get to that level. And I found it to be very effective. And that's the part with Paul that came into being a life coach. Okay, So I got to ask you both, because this is, it's sort of fascinating to think about the NHL, as Paul put it, you know, where the third and fourth liners are in great shape and the stars are kind of, you know, let's have a few beers, do a golf game during the summer, go for a nice walk, that sort of thing. How quickly did you guys see results when you started doing this? Like, I mean, it's like within a couple of weeks, because again, what I was saying, guys playing golf and, and drinking, that was like about 20 years ago. But when it started, like with the era, like with Sidney Crosby and these guys, now there was a big game changer. Every guy had to be in, in tip-top shape. But guys are like, they're, they're hockey players, again, to be at that level, even if you're junior, it's tremendous athletes. Uh, I, I work with PGA guys. I used to bring like Marty Havlat or Milan Mikalik and some of my players to the Ledbetter Golf Academy. I worked with David for years. And David was shocked how quick these guys, sometimes they were not even on the right side because most hockey players, if they're left-handed, they assume they play golf left, but it's not. You're right-handed. If you're lefty in hockey, you need to be right in golf. But again, I'm not there to change their swing. But Ledbetter was shocked how quick these guys picked it up because their, their nervous system is so good. And their balance and their proprioception is so that's why when you implement new type of training and again like alan said just being as a team guys are human beings were pack animals and when you see a guy like marty havlat taking care of the young czech guys he doesn't speak english 
He's like 15 years old. He's kind of far, but he wants to come to Montreal. And, and when Alan told me that kid's going to be good, it means, and Norm told me and other guys, he's going to be good. They're talking about like Marty Furk and these kids. And I met Michael Froelich. He was 12 years old on the ice in Pladno. I was wow. with Marty Havlat and his brother, he told me his brother was playing with Shawinigan, uh, Michael Froelich's brother. And he said, can my little brother comes on the ice with us? I was alone with Marty. Beautiful ice in Cladno, right in the middle of the summer. And I see that kid at 12 says, whoa. And already he was kind of starting to be thick. Says, ah, we think he's going to be good. You mean? <laughs> I think he's going to be good. And I think Froelich had a good career. But that's uh, so, I, want, I want to be clear. We weren't representing Michael Froelich at 12 years old. We were representing, <laughs> no, 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 no. We were representing yeah. his older brother. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and Michael was the first time we, we, we got to see him was when he was 12. Yeah. He would be around the rink when we would do camps in Europe. Uh, Paul and I would go wow. over to Czech Republic together and work with clients over there mm -hmm. uh, sometimes in the summers. And that's when we met uh, wow. Michael Foley. Just want to clarify that very important. And Alan, on, on the on the ice side of things and the contract side of things and the stat side of things, did you notice with your clients right away uh, just a bit of like a change uh, you know, season to season when you started to deal with this stuff in the summer and, and really started to set them up for success? You know, when you go back to that era uh, and you look at the players that we worked with back then, um, Pierre-Marc Bouchard uh, was a high draft pick. Uh, he trained with Paul uh, from the time he was 15, 16 years of age, and he played in the NHL at 18. Uh, Marty Havlat played in the NHL at 19. Uh, Rostislav Olesh, uh, another high draft pick, Florida Panthers client back then, played in the NHL at 19. Um, uh, Milan Michalek, uh, high draft pick, San Jose, drafted in the top 10. Uh, he played in San Jose as an 18 year old. Uh, Marc Andre Fleury uh, played, you know, number one overall, yes, but he played for the Pittsburgh Penguins as an 18 year old. Um, Nobody was seeing players that young coming into the NHL. And yes, they were incredibly skilled, talented athletes, hockey players. But I really believe back then, and I still do today, that part of their education and awareness and off-ice training that they uh, survived with Paul back then played a significant role in helping them get to the NHL when they did. I got to ask you guys this. This is one of the things that um, uh, uh, Steve actually said when we were doing this interview. He's like, okay, you got to ask these two questions. Steve Paul is my co-host for my other show. And, okay. and one of the things that he wanted to know about is oftentimes what filters through to us as fans is um, when players have crazy diets, either they are very specific and very, very healthy or they're very not specific and very unhealthy. Those are, it's the extremes that, that make it through. Um, how do you get an 18 year old to give up all the fun stuff that we all want to eat? Sugars and cookies and all the other things. And, and what do you say to an 18 year old who's like, I just, I don't know, I'm, I'm 18. I got a metabolism that can burn through anything. How do you get them on a, you got to eat this at this point and it's probably not going to be as fun as you want it to be. Well, it's called education because the thing is that, as an example, if you talk about flour, now the last 30 years, they're putting so much like glyphosate in it. It's like where you heard about Roundup and it's actually a research. I work in neuroscience and there's a lot of food that they're neurotoxic and it's all about performance. I always ask the guy, when you eat, it's very simple for everybody that's listening. What you put in your mouth, how do you feel after you put it? Mm. The next hour, as simple as that. If you feel bad, don't eat it anymore. I don't think the first time you put a cigarette in your mouth, that tastes very good. Then don't, <laughs> but don't do it. When you drink too much, how do you feel in the morning? Or are you, are you, you feel queasy? You feel, then don't do it. As simple. It depends on the goal, but it's all about education. And don't get me wrong. You don't have to be too drastic. Like the rice cake with the dry hamburger and that, uh, this is passe. I'm very fortunate to have good friends like 
Frédéric Marais, who's co-owner of Joe Beef and, and uh, Antonio Park. Of, I mean, I, I love food, but I like to make healthy food taste good. That's why when Alan were talking about the, the camp we used to have, restaurant owners uh, in Montreal were very happy to have my guys because <laughs> these guys, these guys, these guys spent a lot of money, but they like good food. And they, they all had that in common, that gathering around like either I don't want to make publicity like a Joe Beef or it's it's great food. It tastes good, but it's good for you also. It's not like uh, La Poutine on the corner or they, they, they know because when you train a lot, sometimes two hours a day, especially in August when you're on in the gym, on the ice, uh, pressure builds up. Some guys are contracted. You know it, Alan. You, like it's, there's, there's life too. They have a wife. They have kids sometimes. They have other things to do. Then when you eat and you feel good day after that, day after day, and also you've got viruses like we see now. Mm-hmm. Your immune system, your recovery is good. You feel like, oh, that's not that bad. It does, you, you, it's an acquired taste. Also, to detoxify the body of eating sweets and, and bad things, It doesn't happen the day the day before, but if you start young with your parents, with that's why we're pushing a lot in schools to build like a, a regular, like a, a just a regular diet, like veggies, fruits, uh, try to get more organic stuff, stay away from chemical, drink a lot of water and take fresh air. And you'll see, you'll have very good results. Hmm. Wow. It doesn't sound as hard as, as it always ma- is made no, out to see. No, it's not. So I, I love. This. So the second thing is, Paul, and and I, you know, when you when you train human beings and you train bodies, especially, you know, you're talking about uh, the highest performing human beings on the planet in terms of physicality, right? The people that you talk to, you got Olympians, you got Stanley Cup winners. Um, uh, is there an age where? And I'm I'm asking this because I want to know for 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 my own personal health a little bit here too. Is there an age where it's like your body turns a corner naturally? And you really need to pay attention and change the way you train, the way you eat, your posture, because we all know when you're young, you can eat most things, you're going to burn it off. You got limitless energy. But at some point, that change does happen. What is that change for athletes? And, and is it usually around the same age or is it different every person? But the human body is like a tomato plant. What do you do when you put your tomatoes in the back? You make sure you have a good stick to make sure that when the Tomato plant's going to grow. It's going to go straight. You make sure the wind doesn't touch it too much. And after a while, you're able to remove the stick when it grows. Same thing as a young tree. The younger we get, that's the advantage we have with Alan because we see guys very young. Like a lot of his athletes from Jonathan Drouin, Huberto, Fleury, 15, 16, sometimes younger than that, we see them. Then we're able to establish a good stick on the side to make them grow in a good way when they take care of their posture. And already we shoot in a bit of nutrition, just a little knowledge. I want to, I like education. You wouldn't might be surprised. A lot of my ex hockey players, like, like a guy, like even like a guy like Marty Havlar or Milan Michalik, uh, the Dufour Lapointe sisters, and even Max Pacioretty that's still active. They could be some of the best strength coach in the NHL because wow. they're fascinated about their body. Like Marty and Milan had a lot of injuries. They learn about recovery, what to eat, what kind of exercise, and they became very good experts without knowing it. And this is going through education. And the, the quicker you get the athlete posturally, balance-wise, mentally, not being a monk, uh, good food, the later the corner will be turned. That's the thing. It, okay. When I was younger... Some of the players I played against, and I'm six, I'll be 61. By the age of 26, 27, you saw they were going downhill. Why? They were drinking a lot. They didn't train that much in the summer. They were smoking cigarette. I mean, it happened. I mean, it, like they had a room at one point, some NHL team. The coach went in to smoke. Some guys were smoking in the room. In the arena, people were smoking. That was pretty unhealthy. The Zamboni had like, carbon monoxide like you're in a garage that was <laughs> yes. he put 15,000 people smoking making the ice you're breathing i mean come on you, you have like it's it's tough man hockey is not an easy sport if you start young you'll turn the corner way later and we see it now we see guys 
that they're playing later on, and they're still very, very good. Marc-André Fleury is 37. You don't see a difference between – no one's going to say, oh, he had a bad game because he's 37. He had bad games when he was 19, and he has good game, and he's 37. I mean, it's, it's – but his body is able to continue, and that's the key. But he has good lifestyle. He's married, stable. He eats well. He trains a lot. Not crazy, but in a good way. And he's going to stop playing when he wants to stop playing. That's, that's the key, man. See, that's, that's it. it's, a, it's a myth. I'm, I went to play hockey two days ago with kids. Like, they don't see me because I have my toque. I got my goggles. But I can, I'm, I'm not an NHL player, but I can move with these kids like Bantam, Triple A, Midget. I have no problem. Wow. And like I'm their grandfather's age. Yes. But if you take care of the body, it's, it's all right. You'll be okay. Yeah. Paul, can you talk about some of your work with Olympic athletes, especially the Dufour La Point sisters? Well, the Dufour La Point sisters are leaving today actually for Beijing. It's going to be for Chloe or fourth Olympic and Justin or third Olympics. And uh, Justin and Chloe are the only one in the history of FIS, Federation International of Ski, uh, of winning gold and silver at Sochi Olympics. And later on, the year after, they were the first three girls because they're three sisters. Maxim, who's in med school, it's her fourth, uh, third year, fourth year med school, uh, with Chloe and Justin, were one, two, three on a podium in a FIS World Cup. And I've been with them for almost 20 years. I met Maxime. Maxime just turned 33, 32. I met her. She was like 12, 13 years old. And I've been with them since then uh, to, to help them. Uh, and they always train. And Alan, that's why he knows them. He, he was fascinated. These young girls, they didn't train like skiers. They train with Rashard. You turn around with Huberto. They're with Patch. <laughs> they're with Marty. No, like when Marty went to the Olympics uh, with the Czech team in 210 in Vancouver, yeah. Chloe was the only one. Chloe, I think we had Pavlet. We had a lot of players on that team at 210 uh, in, uh, in, in Vancouver. Chloe was hanging out with the Czech team. The Canadian guys were like, what are you doing there? They were giving him shit. They were says, those are my training partners in the summer. So that's, that, that was, there was a hey, Chloe. And they were, they used to bring her with, with them and like, make sure everything is all right. And you need anything. And that, that was the nature, but they were amazing. And up to today in the summer, like the last two summer, I trained my athletes, my hockey players, mainly outdoor. They were all the time with UB and these guys all the time training and toe-to-toe too. And that's how they got their, their level. Same thing with uh, Gabriela Papadakis and Guillaume Serrault. They're five-time world champ in figure skating and dance. And they train a lot with my NHL. They're probably going to win this year. I hope but the goal, they went in Pyeongchang. They finished second behind our Canadians. But, I mean, that's, that's the time of athletes that all – uh, all mixed around. I remember when George St. Pierre was helping him with his hip, I uh, was training some of the older guys like Yann Leperrier and Darchi and these guys and Marty and Marty was young and they used to see, wow, George coming in. It was like no one talked and George <laughs> very like, George, like look at them like, come on guys, I'm just a fighter. I don't see it. And George is so humble and I, but they stepped it up. It was insane in the gym when George just entered the gym to do his, his rehab for his hip. And that's how the, the, the parallel now, like it's a good question, Alan, because I could see like the last 10 years, professional athletes went like this. Before Olympic athletes were very high level. We had all the technology. They were more serious, not a lot of off time, but I would say the last five, six years now, especially in the NHL, I see a big, big movement upward for, for the good. Uh, there's less, there's less non-impact injuries. Now they're starting to be more, uh, you hear less of groin, you hear slowly guys are changing their system of training, less heavy weights, less pounding the body too much, more recovery. They do sauna, they watch their heating, they do meditation, they do stretching and ice bath. Like this afternoon, I'm going to roll in the snow. They do that. Most of my players, they bought their own sauna. They do a lot of work. They invest a lot of time and money, and they know that's going to be paying later on that at 50, they won't be in a wheelchair having two hip surgery. 
because people forget hockey players deserve way more respect than that. You're a banker. You make pretty much the same amount of money that they do. But after your career, you'll be able to play with your kids. No problem. That's the thing. And now they're, they, they, you have to respect them that, listen, every day they're, they're putting their body under a lot of a lot of beating, inflammation. And I mean, their joints, they hurt by the age of 40 or 45. And that's why us as researchers, we're there to try to help them more to have a better after career that at least they'll be able to play with their kids and their grandkids and spending their good money that Alan got them through good contracts. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> well, I hear he's a tough negotiator, Paul. That's, that's just the rumor. I, I tell you, he done miracle because poor Alan, I send him some players because you know what happens in an arena when you have all these guys and Alan, I mean, he has a big roster and some other guys, they see that like, wow, my agent never called me. He's never here. Alan is always there. Can I have a meeting with him? And some of the guys, they were okay, but as a favor, it's okay, Gagne, I'll get, I'll get a meeting. And sometimes the guy gave Alan a good impression and he signed him. And they were shocked uh, what kind of contract he got them from an American League only guy that like, whoa, I got a one way in the NHL. What's going on here? But that's, and I think I saw a smile that he had a lot more fun with these kind of like, not, I don't want to say lower level player, but they were not like the Crosby or mm -hmm. the Pacioretty, but Allen had a, the biggest smile in his face when he's able to nail a great. And these guys, a lot of these guys and Allen test could testify. He became better. Most of these guys, they were kind of signed for third, fourth line. A lot of them ended up in first line after a year or two or three because they say, hey, I can play that game. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the key. And this is where that this is where I mean uh, that's we're paid to see that the big smile and everybody's happy and life is very short, guys. There, there's a, a a real truth behind uh I think players being uh more motivated, more focused when they truly believe that other people, specifically the people around them, believe in them. Hmm. And, and you know, nothing is as demoralizing to players as feeling like the people around you, your agent, your strength and conditioning coach, uh, don't care about you or have given up on you. And, and by continuing to push them and be there for them, uh, I've had many players over the years say to me that that was one element in what really had them at times when they were doubting themselves uh, really refocus, reset. Um, sometimes you have to take uh, a step sideways or even a, a step backwards to move forwards in the future. Um, just being able to uh, give somebody your emotional support, uh, being able to do little things for them behind the scenes really gives them the motivation uh, and, and the feeling inside, I think that, you know, hey, I don't want to let these people down. They believe in me. And, right. and that's something that you can't really quantify. You can't uh, uh, put a number on that, but it's real. And, and Paul and I together have seen that time and time again. Wow. Wow. I mean, proof's in the pudding. There have been, uh, I mean, you look at uh, the players on the roster and uh, um, the ones that, Alan, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of uh, a Vesna Trophy winner from last season. Um, you know, somebody who, uh, uh, you know, was on this show, Marc-Andre Fleury. Um, what a bounce back year. I quote unquote bounced back here, but I think what it was, was um, Marc-Andre Fleury seemed to believe in himself and it seems like the people around him believed in him too. Um, and, you know, he wins a Vesna trophy and does extremely, extremely well. So listen, I, uh, Alan, unless, do you have uh, anything more you'd like to add before we wrap up the show? Uh, no, I think we've covered it uh, well, Paul, you've been uh, incredibly generous with your time and to share uh, some of the great stories behind the scenes. Uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us. 
And uh, Adam, you want to wrap up? Well, I do, but I just want to say to to Paul, uh, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fascinating as a fan to learn about what life is like when we don't see them on the ice, when we don't see the, our favorite players on the ice. Um, good luck uh, to uh, to the um, to all the athletes you're training that went to the Olympics, and uh, and of course, we hope you'll join us again because it was absolutely fascinating. And now you got me thinking. I got to go see a posturologist, and I got to probably get orthotics and get get my ass in gear. Really, I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah, and watch what you eat, Adam. Watch what yes. you eat. Yes, <laughs> that too. No question. Yeah.